0: We are studying through the book of Matthew, and we've gotten to Matthew chapter 23, and we're this week reading verses 13 to 15. You may think that's a small thing to study. We should take a larger bite if we're going to eat, but I assure you this is plenty. Um, Matthew 23 is the beginning of a section where Jesus judges the nation of Israel and particularly the religious leaders. So let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, first, an incidental note about verse 14. If you have a Bible, or if you'll just look here, you see the brackets at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse. What that indicates is that this is a part of Scripture that it's probable shouldn't be there. We have gotten the main Bible in use for centuries now in the English language is the King James Version. And so everything is judged by the King James Version. And since the King James Version has that verse in it, every other translation will tend to put that verse in, even though they know it shouldn't be there. And you say, well, how do they know it shouldn't be there? And why did the King James think it should be there? Well, the King James was the result of one text tradition. The Bible is a compilation of a bunch of different manuscripts. People copied them by hand for centuries. They didn't used to have photocopying machines that would produce a perfect image of, of the thing that they were copying. But men would sit at a table and they copy, 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 copy. Well, if you've ever copied anything, you know the chance of error is large. And so what happened, we believe, is that this verse, verse 4, which is in another place in the Gospels, a different Gospel, got inserted here by a mistake. But the best manuscripts, in other words, the manuscripts going back to the earliest times that the King James people didn't have access to, those best manuscripts don't have it in the Bible. So what do they do is they, 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 they adopt a posture that's halfway between both options. Uh, They don't kick it out, but they don't take the brackets apart. And so what you have is there, but not in brackets. So if you read Bible scholars writing about this text, what they'll say is some of them will say that there are eight woes in this chapter. And some will say that there are seven woes. And the reason some say seven and others eight is that the people that say there are seven don't consider that properly in the text. And the people that say eight say, well, verse four is one of the woes. All right. Enough on that. Now, the text starts with, but woe to you. What does the word woe mean? Well, the word woe is uh, capable of having a variety of meanings. Um, It can be something of a lament or a warning. Woe. Uh, it can also be condemnation, woe to you. And if we look at this text and the rest that follows in the book, in the chapter 23, we see that again and again and again, the most frequent word that's used is the word hypocrite. Well, if you know that the most frequent word is hypocrite, you know that this is not principally a sad statement, woe, but rather it's a condemning statement. And true, this is. The word woe, this is a denunciation. Maybe it would be easier for us to understand it, not to refer to it as a denunciation, but rather as a curse. So Jesus is cursing the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you. Matthew Henry, from a couple centuries ago, says that these woes are, quote, like so many claps of thunder or flashes of lightning from Mount Sinai. It's dark at night. We were sitting over at the Schroeder's home the other night, and the storm blew through very late at night. And, uh, you know, pastors don't know enough to go home when it gets late. And so there we were from about 11 to 1 watching as the storm went through. And as the claps of thunder and the lightning hit, they had a big, uh, what do they call it, picture window and trees in their front yard, and every time that the the lightning hit, you could see these trees, huge trees outlined against the night sky, and when the lightning was not there to show them, you couldn't see the trees. The trees weren't there. Well, of course, they were there, but it took the flash of lightning to show what? It took the flash of lightning to show the trees. And this is what Jesus is doing. These woes are a clap of thunder, a flash of lightning to show the true nature of what the scribes and Pharisees are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, if we go into the Old Testament, we'll find similar woes. I'm going to read one from Matthew or Isaiah chapter 5, a prophet, where he says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. So that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Does does anybody see the application of this to America today? Anybody? Add house to house, land to land, until all the rich people live alone because they've amassed so much housing around them, so much land that there's no fellowship. There's no intimacy because they have too much property. And Jesus, God says woe about this. He says, in my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. Woe to those, verse 11, who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Any application to today? Woes? Driving over here this morning, went past the AmVet's place. I usually don't look at it. Taylor was driving, and so I had leisure. And so I looked over there. What did I see? Well, I saw a whole bunch of trucks and even a motorcycle parked outside of the bar. Now, why are they parked outside of a bar at that time in the morning? Well, the reason is that they weren't able to, drink, to drive when they went home because they were too drunk. Then I noticed something I'd never noticed before. Have you noticed that there's a playground outside of the m bar? A playground for little children. Well, why is there a playground? God says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may aflame them. And this is what we're surrounded by in a university community, isn't it? And then it goes on, and their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Therefore, Sheol, which is hell, has enlarged its throat, opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry. And the jubilant within her descend into it. Into what? Into hell. Verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. Who say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. So. So what you see is the people are given over to all the wickedness and their their priests, their prophets, the religious leaders are absolutely one with them in it. And the wicked even say to the priests and prophets, speak to us about the Lord. And then it says it says this, it says, woe to those who call evil, good and good, evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. And as Monty Python says, where is the ambiguity? There's none. There's none. It's absolutely applicable to our city, to our town, to our televisions, to our newspapers, to our classrooms, to everything we do. This is us, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Come on. It is. It absolutely is. This is who we are. We call evil good. We call good evil. We call right wrong. We call wrong right. We take bribes and we give over uh, the unborn to death. And that's who we are. And the streets of our cities are filled with blood. But we have very sophisticated sewage systems that take it away so we don't have to look at it. And that's who we are. Now, did God care about these wicked people? Well, yes, because he sent them Isaiah. Was Isaiah typical? No, Isaiah wasn't. What was typical were those who called evil good and good evil. Who scratched the itching ears of the time. Woe to you, you hypocrites. What's interesting is I just read to you from the Old Testament, and we're very happy to have the Old Testament be the place where God's judgment is shown and where the prophets speak. But what I want you to recognize is that I've just read to you the woes from the Old Testament, but our texts are the woes in the New Testament. And they're not just in the New Testament. They're woes from the mouth of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God. He is the one who is speaking the woes to the religious leaders and saying that these religious leaders were leading their people to hell. Now, what is it true of you if... The Lamb of God is the one that pronounces your curse. What is true of you if the one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, turns and says, You have turned your people into twice the son of hell. You are yourselves. You will not go into heaven, and you have barred the door against those who desire to go into heaven. What is true of you if Jesus Christ curses you? Are you cursed? infinitely more than when Isaiah curses you, aren't you? And so here we have Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, pronouncing curses on the religious leaders of his time, right? And what does he say? He says, woe to you, you hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? It's very interesting to read the the, 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 uh, the men who write the commentaries on Scripture trying to help me preach? Because sometimes they're scandalized by God. And you can see it happen as they write. You're reading them and, and you can just see them going, hey, hey, hey I don't want to write that. You know, I don't want to admit that's what it says. That's too harsh. And that happens here with the word hypocrite. One of the commentators went on and on and on about how this word hypocrite isn't really as harsh as you might think it is. Don't, don't have such a narrow view of this word hypocrite. Actually, here, the word hypocrite doesn't mean people who are completely false. Here, the word hypocrite means uh, men who didn't have the way to God correct. It, they, they were off in the path of salvation, and so they led people. They didn't lead people to heaven. This isn't accusing them principally of being dishonest and false. This is simply talking about them not leading people to heaven. <laughs> and of course, the funny thing about that is, so that's better? Well, of course, at the, at the heart of being a hypocrite is being a hypocrite. <laughs> and we all know what it means. It means they're completely false. Now, in what way are they completely false? Well, They're completely false in that they're play-acting at leading people to heaven when they're really leading them to hell. They're play-acting at loving God when they really hate God. They're play-acting at being religious when they're really filled with adultery. In other words, they're the very opposite of what they claim to be. Not only that, they're not just opposite from what they claim, but their conscience knows the truth. They know what's right. They know the true path to God. They know who Jesus is. They know he's the Messiah. And they, they consciously make a decision knowing what's true. They make a decision that they're going to lead people away from what is true. That's who they are. And so what we see when we go through the book of Matthew and the other gospels is consistently, what do they say to their people? What they say is, You know, get away from Jesus. You know, he'll heal a blind man, he'll raise the dead, he'll he'll make the lame walk, he'll 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 heal a palsied hand, he'll do all kinds of wonderful things for them, and then they accuse him of what? What they say is that he did what? That he did it by the power of Beelzebub. And you see this all through Matthew, where they say, These miracles he has done by the power of Satan. And so what they do is they accuse Jesus of being an instrument of the devil. Who was it, Goebbels, who said, you know, you have to make the lie huge, and and that's all it takes. The people will believe it. And so their lie is huge, which is that God himself is Satan, and that, of course, leaves them free to be God. Woe to you. You hypocrites, they know the truth, they know the true path to God, they know who Jesus is, and instead of leading people to him, they lead them away. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They act as if they are concerned and sympathetic to Jesus when their, their malicious hearts are plotting to kill him. They willfully slandered Jesus. They were liars. They were deceivers. They were frauds. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were snakes. They were hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven for men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven has at its heart authority. We have a very difficult time today understanding any of the language of kingship. Calling Jesus Lord, uh, referring to the kingdom of heaven. At the heart of a kingdom is authority. And so when we read the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, what we're referring to, what Jesus is referring to, is the place of God's absolute authority. Now, we know that the authority of God can start. And for many who are saved, does start in this world, in the hearts of men. And then those men and women are transferred on death into the kingdom of heaven where God's reign is complete. So the kingdom of heaven is the place of God's authority. And what is said about these religious leaders is that they shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. Now, this man is not referring to the male species as opposed to the female. It includes men and women. And what it says is that these religious leaders shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. What is the purpose of religion? The purpose of religion is to establish the authority of God. And what they do is they shut off the authority of God. And then it says, For you do not enter in yourselves. So the place of authority of God, these religious leaders will not go into that place of the authority of God. Matthew Henry says why. He says they were too proud to stoop to his meanness. Now, we think of mean as being a bully. That's not the meaning that Matthew Henry's using. Matthew Henry is, is using meanness to refer to humility. Okay? And he says that the reason the religious leaders would not enter the kingdom, shut it off to themselves first, was that they were too proud to stoop to his meanness. They were too formal to be reconciled to his plainness. What would it mean to be too formal to be reconciled to his plainness? Why wouldn't the Pharisees go into the kingdom of heaven? Why wouldn't they enter the place of God's authority? Because they were too proud to stoop low. They were too formal to not have robes and cathedrals and pipe organs. They did not like a religion which insisted so much on humility. You see yourself in this? They did not like a religion which insisted so much on humility, self-denial, contempt of the world, in short, spiritual worship. Now, you know why we're constantly, as pastors and elders, warning you against liturgy, ritual, beautiful church sanctuaries, glorious music, robes and albs and smells and bells. And, and you say, well, but those things can be used by God. They were in the Old Testament. I say, yeah, they can be used by God. Do you think you've said something? Sex can be used by God. We warn you about sex. So you can understand how something that's very beautiful is also very dangerous, right? With sex, right? Right? Everybody has no problem with that. So guess what? When it comes to worship, all those beautiful things can be very, very seductive. And if I say to you that your pride wants your religion to be formal, to be beautiful, To be, in short, glorious like you. Do you take warning? You say, yeah, but those Baptists, they take pride in their humility, and it isn't humility at all. It's just pride. I say, yeah, it can go both ways. We know that. That's nothing new. But again, listen to Matthew Henry. They were too proud to stoop to Jesus' meanness They were too formal to be reconciled to Jesus' plainness. They did not like a religion which insisted so much on humility, self-denial, contempt of the world, and spiritual worship. Repentance was the door of admission into his kingdom, and nothing could be more disagreeable to the Pharisees. Who justified and admired themselves... Nothing could be more disagreeable than to repent. That is to accuse and to abase and to abhor themselves. And therefore, they would not go in themselves. Because I like to be a prophet at a distance. And because a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. I'll tell you that having been in St. Paul's Cathedral... In London, there is absolutely nothing about that place that has to do with God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What that place exists to do is to stroke the arrogance of the British people. Now, what about here? What exists to stroke the arrogance of the American people? Well, you know what Americans are like? Americans are so sophisticated, they don't bother putting their money into churches anymore. You know what I'm talking about? We're beyond that. In the old days, we used to build monuments to our religion. Now we build monuments to our true religion, which is the academy. (laughs) It's the university. You ever looked at the figures of the endowments of the universities of this country? (laughs) What is the most beautiful building in Bloomington? You work there. Huh? Yeah, you work there. I envy it every time I drive by it. So now I go across the south side of the community. It's IU Foundation. It used to be that salvation was salvation. Then salvation became liberation. We had liberation theology. Now salvation is education. And today, our hope is not in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We have made ourselves. He has not made us. And the people that are our high priests are the ones that run the academy. And that's where the endowments go. I got a thing in the mail this week saying that Covenant College has now reached... Its goal of, I think, $30 million that it wanted to raise the next few years. They've met it halfway through the campaign. The money that is given to universities and colleges, to alma maters, is mind-boggling. It's absolutely mind-boggling. And how do they do it? Well, did you notice this verse that isn't in the text? That is in the text, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses... And how do endowment funds of universities grow? Well, the people that work at the foundations of all these colleges and universities go and befriend older people who are lonely. And they talk sweetly to them. And then the older people set up charitable remainder trusts where they have enough money to live on at the standard of living that they have become used to But when they die, all the money goes to their nursing mother, their alma mater. Is the university anybody's nursing mother? Think of what a nursing mother should be. Pure milk. Unconditional love, ready to die for you. Is that what the colleges and universities of this country are today? You say, oh, here we go again. Don't you know we work at the university? We work at the foundation. How could you attack things that we depend upon? And I go, oh, come on. So you want me to just, like, talk about London? <laughs> you know? I've thought a lot about this today and yesterday because... Yesterday, we got a copy of my aunt's will. Some of you knew Annie Lane. Remember Annie Lane? Died this last year. Mary Lee had cared for her for the last six years. We had cared. She lived in our home. She was 93 or 4 when she died. Three. Um, Do you know something? Do you know that when Annie Lane died, not a penny came the church of the good shepherd now either that's stupid or it's good now which do you think it is is it stupid or good or a little bit of both it's probably a little bit of both because that keeps you from having to make a decision right Do you know that when Rita Cuffey died, another older woman who was a widow who died a number of years ago, do you know that not a penny of her inheritance or residuals or whatever you call it when people die that they leave estate, Not a penny of her estate came to Church of the Good Shepherd. That good or bad? You know, there were... Nonprofits that got a lot of money from Annie Lane. A lot. It's good or bad that money didn't come from her to us. Do you see what it says here? It says Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. You know, I don't ever want to be a part of a church that lives off of widows' houses. Thank you, Esther. You know why? Because I want widows in this church to know that we love them. And you're a widow if you don't have a husband. You don't have to have had him die. (laughs) I want you guys to know we're not in it for your money. We love you. I remember reading Cotton Patch Evidence, which is the story of Clarence Jordan down in Georgia standing against racism because he was a Christian. You remember that that guy, Koinonia Farms? Uh, Hamilton Jordan worked under Jimmy Carter. You remember Ham Jordan? He was Clarence Jordan's nephew. He said the two people he admired most in his life were Clarence Jordan and Jimmy Carter. So Clarence Jordan had this, uh, this farm set up. He was a very rich white man, and he decided that racism was such a scandal to the name of Jesus Christ. He was going to spend his life setting up farms for black men and women to own and to produce their own income instead of working for white people. Well, the minute he started doing this, all the whites in the South started attacking him And at first, the attacks were sort of veiled, but soon they became direct. Uh, Shotguns fired through the windows of his house. Shotguns fired through the windows of the houses that uh, he had helped build uh, uh, Habitat for Humanity comes out of that community, okay? And uh, then... They had a large farm set up that were sort of cooperative ventures. Then the local implement dealers started stopped selling them parts for their for their tractors and combines when they broke down. And uh, the reason I'm telling you this story is that Clarence Jordan and his community, this godly ministry, were in terrible terrible straits. It got terrible bad, and um, in the midst of this a very, very wealthy, uh, single, older woman from north came down uh, because she was interested in joining their community and being a part of this godly work. And when she came down and visited for a week, she decided she was going to join the community. And she went to Clarence and she said, I want to become a part of this work. I love the work and, and I want to give you all of my money. She was a very, very wealthy woman. So you know what Clarence Jordan said to her? (laughs) he said we'd love to have you but before you come give away your money up north because we want it to be absolutely clear to you that we love you and that you're not accepted here in love because of your money but because of who you are and i fell in love with clarence jordan (laughs) isn't that wonderful You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. There are lots of people out there who are stroking the egos of older people, single people, widows, and taking their homes, putting all their assets in charitable remainder trusts, working with lawyers, and they're preying on widows. And you know, this is done so constantly in the name of Jesus Christ so constantly you know what my dad used to say he used to say that the surest way to kill a church was to give it an endowment and the reason he said that was that an endowment keeps the people of the church from having to consciously kill their greed and support the church, you and me because after all some rich dead person gave us an endowment Did you ever wonder whether the reason that an endowment kills a church is because the endowment came almost always at the expense of the souls who gave it? How many times do you think a large endowment of millions of dollars comes to a church from a godly person who loves Christ and is headed for heaven? You say, well, you can't say that all rich people are evil. I say, you're right. There is, after all, that eye of the needle, and some camels do make it through. But how many? Remember the disciples, when Jesus taught on that, said to him, "Well, Lord, who can be saved? And he said, with God, all things are possible, even miracles. There are some rich people. There are a few Americans who do believe. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. This is Jesus, people. Don't harden your heart against it. It's Jesus, and he loves us. And so what is Jesus saying here? Well, a proselyte is a convert. He's talking about evangelism. And what he's saying is, you religious leaders are all about evangelism. Now, today, when you look at Jews, there's nothing about evangelism. The principal thing we know about Jews today is they hate proselytizing. One of the first things that happened to me when I came to this community, I was a part of the Campus Ministers Association. They brought us a document, and there were Jews, rabbis involved with the Campus Ministers Association. The document sought to get me to sign my name under a statement that I would not proselytize. And so proselytization is evangelism. And back in those days, the Jews actually believed in evangelism. They would go out, they would seek to bring Gentiles into the Jewish faith. And as the Gentiles got more and more open to the things of God, they would walk closer and closer to becoming Jews, to worshiping the true God. And then when they finally were really converted, what happened was they were baptized, they made a sacrifice, and if they were men, they were circumcised. All right? And so Jesus is just acknowledging that the Jews at the time were really big into evangelism, weren't they? Really big into it. And what he's saying is, you're going across heaven and earth to win a single convert, a single proselyte, and when you win him, you turn him into twice the son of hell you are yourselves. Now, again, I keep asking you, does this text, this statement by Jesus, have anything to do with us? It's hard to even conceive of how huge conversion and evangelism is in the evangelical world, in in, in, in the Bible-believing Christian world of America today, isn't it? It may be that the money that goes into that dwarfs the money that goes into the academy in America. Missions budgets. What is it that gives the greatest bragging rights to an evangelical church? How large their missions budget is. But, of course, we're never talking about missions to our neighbors. It's always the savages in Africa. And now we're sophisticated. We don't call them that anymore, but you know. Africans need the gospel. My goodness. (laughs) I don't know why that was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs the gospel? I'll never forget when I was preaching at ECC, David Mensah came from Ghana, African, and he preached. And he said, you people sent your missionaries over to Africa and you preached the gospel and we believed. And now we come back here and we find you in utter moral turpitude. We find you pussyfooting with sodomy. And we can't believe it. What has happened to you? And I thought to myself, every time I can get an African into my pulpit, I'm, I'm getting them. And so you look at the church in America today, and what does the church exist to do? Well, it depends on where in the continuum of the church you choose to examine. You know, you have your liberal, liberal, liberal churches, which have made sexual orgasm into a sacrament. You understand what I'm saying? And every man has a right to the sacrament according to his own proclivities. And this is why the liberals are all about mainstreaming homosexuality, because shouldn't those people have the right to the sacrament? Too, The unorgasmic life is a life not worth living. That is America's creed. So you say, well, to hell with them. We all know they're headed for hell. Don't talk to us about them. I say, all right, let's move over a little way to the evangelical world. What is the evangelical world about today? The evangelical world is about telling you that wealth is good as long as you tithe it. The evangelical world is all about telling you that God didn't mean what he said when he told you to submit to those in authority over you because they keep watch for your souls as men that must give an account. The evangelical world is all about telling wives they don't need to submit to their husbands. It's all about putting women into the pulpit. On every single level, the evangelical world strokes the egos of those who sit in its pews. It's all about praying the sinner's prayer and having a relationship with Jesus. It's all about telling you that grace triumphs over law. The evangelical world massages you. It scratches your ears right where you want to be scratched. Is it a shock to us that Americans want to be told that authority is evil and that now that we live in the kingdom of God, we're done with submission? Is this a surprise to you? You know, does anybody need to go to college to learn that one? Josiah knew it when he was born. My grandson. (laughs) You know, Josiah... Seems to understand on a deep level this concept of rebellion, <laughs> right? How many of your mothers mothers? How many of you have little children? Raise your hands. Do any of your children need to be taught rebellion? Huh? Yours does. So, so your daughter doesn't understand rebellion? No, no. You, you didn't. I, I was not asking the question, right? Yeah. No, none of our kids all know rebellion, and so guess what? The evangelical world tells you that you don't need to be a member of a church. I mean, how nasty those men up front telling you what to do. There was a man I've told you about who um, once said to me that he would submit to no man but Jesus Christ. Sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? He's a Brian, right? No. And guess what? After the wedding, he came up to Stephen, and he was in Stephen's face about what Stephen had said in the middle of the service. Surprise! A rebel is a rebel is a rebel is a rebel. And so forget the mainline super, super liberal ones come into evangelicalism. What are evangelicals making you a convert to? What? Is there anything painful about being converted under an evangelical ministry? Is there anything that's scandalous to America today? Is there anything that will cause you to be ostracized at work? Is there anything about an evangelical college that will cause them to not be acceptable When they go off to their professional societies to try to write for the referee journals. had a woman say to me yesterday that our problem, and she was including me, I was grateful. Our problem is that people view us as judgmental. And she said she'd learned that in Christianity today. Wheaton's problem is that it's judgmental. The whole nation points to Wheaton and says, those nasty, judgmental Wheaton people. I mean, it's a joke. Do you think anybody looks at city churches and Redeemer churches and says they're judgmental? No. What they say is they're cool. They have art galleries. And the art galleries are attached to the sanctuaries, and you can go there and drink good coffee. I mean, come on, guys. Come on. I mean, get a life. It's just disgusting. What we've done in America today is we've taken the educated, upper-middle-class life, we've called it Christianity, and we've thrown Jesus' name for good measure. That's all we've done. If God exists, he's scary. And if he's scary then it would behoove us to learn to fear him. And if we're going to fear him, we have to leave behind and understand our preacher denouncing those churches that present a God who's small and doesn't require us to kneel and doesn't require us to have humility, doesn't require repentance, doesn't require anything that goes against our sinful natures. Don't you ever think that when it comes to feminism, it's just one opinion among many, and you can have a civil debate among your colleagues. Feminism is from hell. It is from hell. And it is the principal gap in the wall that Satan is using to destroy the consciences of the sheep in God's flock today. Some people think it's only a matter of who submits to whom in the marriage or whether or not you have women in the pulpit. That has as, as almost nothing to do with feminism. Feminism attacks the authority of the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Feminism attacks the concept of submission. Feminism places submission into a category of fallen, the fallen world. Feminism says that... When we are redeemed, we no longer have to deal with authority and submission. And you think that has to do with whether a woman is in this pulpit? And whether you submit to your husband? It has to do with it, yes, but it has nothing to do with it. Nothing. Feminism is just the latest variation on a long, long history of heresies that attack God. You know... um, I'm going to end, but before I end, I want to read to you Calvin on this text. Now, some of you know who Calvin is. He wrote 500 years ago. He wrote at a time when the principal enemy was not feminism, but Rome. Okay? Rome. Why did he write against Rome? Calvin, Luther, everybody, they never shut up about Rome. You know that. Every time they opened their mouths, it didn't matter what text it was, what doctrine in their systematic theologies, it was Rome right? Kind of like somebody you know. (laughs) All right. And we listen to Calvin and we love him because we love people to attack Rome, right? No, no, no. If I ever say something myself of my own volition against Rome, you would not believe how angry you get as a congregation. Let me tell you, I hear about it. What you want me to do is to to read Calvin from way back here to you so that you can look from a distance and see how courageous he was. And then what you do to me is say, Shut up! Tell us about the dead men. Tell us about the old battles. Tell us about the heroes that are in the graves. Let's have a memorial day. All right, so here I'm going to give you a memorial day. Here's what Calvin says on this text... He says, just so, so he's looking at the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites, what Jesus says. On this text, he says, just so. In other words, exactly the same today. He says, just so today, in these days, we are driven to thunder out our denunciations of the papal clergy precisely in order that those not entirely reprobate, but still ready to learn, may take thought for their salvation. Just as Jesus thundered against the hypocrites so that the people of God would take warning and flee, we are yelling our denunciations today against the papacy. So that again, the people of God may take warning and flee. and shaken by the judgment of God may break the fatal noose of superstition that holds them captive. Now, what if I were to say to you that about the Roman Catholic Church today? Fatal superstition. What if I were to say that to you about the Lutheran Church today? Fatal superstition. What if I were to say that to you about the Presbyterian Church today? Fatal superstition. And then he goes on and he says, Consider then. In other words, they're scandalized that we yell about fatal fatal superstition today. Jesus yelled about it. Now I'm reading you Calvin yelling about it. You're okay with Calvin yelling about it. When I try to make the application today, you kind of get uptight. He says this He says, Consider then what a cruel leniency affects those who dislike our vehemence. He says, Stop and think. What a cruel gentleness. People have who don't like us getting all exercised and yelling at them. A cruel gentleness. Now, gentleness can't be cruel. Cruel can't be gentle. Remember the Monty Python scheme about the Dinsdale brothers? He was a cruel man, but fair. Doesn't work, does it? Cruel leniency. Do you know what that means? Let me go on. He says, consider then what a cruel leniency affects those who dislike our vehemence. They dislike the tough and painful treatment dealt to wolves who continually bare their teeth to tear and to devour their sheep. They can watch the wretched sheep tricked by a false cover rush of their own accord into the wolves' jaws unless... The shepherd whose heart is set on their safety drives them off with shouts. You go, don't shout. We know what shout means. We must follow Christ's counsel and threaten wicked deceivers with severity. I have a blog. And last night I put something up on the blog about feminism. And I just said, I didn't name her, didn't even say it was a she, Anybody can take the text and they can Google the text. You know how to do that. Put it in quotes. You'll find where it came from. It says nothing to do with Christianity. This is opposition to the living God. And you know what always happens when I do that? Somebody writes in some sincere soul and says, if you were godly, you would not make such accusations against other Christians. She claims the name of Christ. People... Let me tell you, every single one of the people that Jesus was condemning publicly, every single one of them was a Christian. Every single one of them was an evangelical. Every single one of them had a tattered Bible in his hand. Every single one of them had children that went to Wheaton College. Every single one of them was a member of the Reformed Baptists or the PCA or the Missouri Synod Lutheran. Every single one of them had the credentials to show that they were were messengers of the true God. Every single one of them. And Jesus said they were hypocrites. He said they would not go into heaven and they would not suffer anyone else to go into heaven. He said that when they made converts, they turned the converts into twice the son of hell they were themselves. In other words, in the name of God, They sent people to hell. They barred the door to heaven. They themselves were going to hell and misery likes company. That was the nature of the conservative Christian evangelical world at the time. And you're scandalized because I say these things. And let me tell you, all through history, men have said these things. And when I die, some of you will be glad that you had me as a pastor, but not until I die. I guarantee it. It's always that way. When my dad died, my father was a prophet. And so when the tribune, Chicago Tribune called to do an obit on him, they were going to actually give him some space. And I was curious to know what people would say about my dad, famous people, religious leaders. Chicago is filled with them. Do you know what none of them said anything about? None of them said anything about my father being a prophet. And I felt so betrayed. They talked about him being an author, talked about him being an editor, talked about him being a speaker. No one said he was a prophet. I could not figure out why nobody, when my dad died, said he was a prophet. Because it was the thing I loved above everything else about my father. you imagine being alive at the time of Calvin and punishing him for warning you against Rome? And yet that's what he says happened. And what did they do to Jesus? What did they do to Jesus? What did they do to Jesus? They killed Jesus. People, your soul is a precious thing. But don't you think that because a man says that he is going to speak to you about God in heaven that you may trust him? You can't. How do you know if a preacher will lead you to heaven or hell? How do you know? I'm going to give you two ways to know. One way is it says about the Bereans that everything that Paul said to them, they went home and they checked it in their Bibles. If you don't know your Bible, you're completely at the mercy of false shepherds. You examine what I say by the Word of God to see if I'm saying the painful things. You don't look to see if I know that You know, love suffers all things. Love believes all things. Love expects all things. Faith, hope, remain in the best of Jesus. Love. Because then all I'm really saying is what John Lennon said. Love, love, love. Now, I'm not demeaning love, but I'm saying don't test me on the easy things. Everybody can talk about Love. You test your preachers on the hard things, the things that go against your grain, the things that cause you to have to be humble, the things that cause you to have to stoop well. That's where you examine a preacher. The second thing is you look for the fruit. When you sit under a preacher, do you become holy or do you become callous to God? Is your conscience awakened or is your conscience deadened? When you leave a sermon, are you angry or sad or are you just happy? Now, I could go on much longer, but those are two places to start. And they're good places to start. All right, let's pray.